standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 135 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I'd like to recommend that anyone feeling a bit flat, and let's face it, who isn't, treats themselves to a little look at Scotland's Gritter Tracker, which is a delight. Special mention to Helen Lewis for bringing this to my attention and also to three of my favourite gritters, Spready Mercury, I Want to Break Freeze and Gritty Gritty Bang Bang. Nice. Who named these? The people of Scotland. <laughs> Only Jen. the public come up with names like that. <laughs> I was going to say, is this is this like a Boaty McBoatface situation? Exactly that. Yes. Lovely. Is there one called True Gritter? I think there is one called True Gritter. I approve. And the, another favourite of mine is Yes Sir Ice Can Boogie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and you know that time someone thought I was in fancy dress and I was actually in my normal clothes. <laughs> How could we forget? One of my favourite anecdotes. Well, Pauline, it happened again. (laughs) Were you at another Hobbit convention? (laughs) I was having a Zoom meeting with some friends of mine. Not meeting, you know, meet up. (laughs) That's very formal for friends. That's how we communicate. And it was the last time we were all going to see each other before Christmas. And when my friend Paul, Paul Kirkley, pops up, he has a Father Christmas hat on. And everyone said, oh, look at you making an effort. And he said, Hannah's made an effort. And I was like, what? And he said, oh, have you not made an effort? And I was like, no. (laughs) And he he said, I totally thought you were dressed as an elf. (laughs) And I had a red jumper and my green dungarees on. That is very festive. That is classic Christmas colours. Yeah, actually, it was a red and white stripy jumper. I mean, it was. (laughs) Oh, you were asking for it then. They were just my ordinary clothes, Jen. (laughs) When someone mentioned Father Christmas, did you go, I know him? Yeah. I'm Jen Offord, and on Saturday I enjoyed a substantial meal of a sausage roll and seven chips. Were they all out of scotch eggs? There wasn't a scotch egg on the menu, but I, I assumed that the sausage roll and the vegan sausage roll, which they looked like they had absolutely been bought in from Greg's and reheated. It's funny yeah. how scotch egg has gone in a kind of full circle. 20 years ago, Alan Partridge was eating them and we were laughing at it. And now they've become like this. You can get a hipster, hipster scotch food, egg. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Like bar snacks. I quite like a scotch egg, but I also like Ginsters. So, you know, judge me. That's fine. <laughs> it's a very, I don't know whether it's maybe a, a northern snack, but it's very much makes me think of weddings, christenings and funerals. And I'm not angry about the scotch egg being a big part of that. Now, is a scotch egg like... Just to put, just to make it more partridge, is it like the PA and the tannoy situation? Because sometimes in Sano's or wherever they refer to a Scotch egg as a party egg. Is a sc- well, a party egg is different. Is a party it? egg is a smaller version of a Scotch egg, and the egg inside, the egg within, is chopped up a lot finer. Whereas a Scotch <laughs> egg is port-based meat around a full egg. Gem. So that is the definition of a party, in case anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was once a time in a field a long, long time ago when Nick Miller was living in my house and he is partial to a party egg and we stood about 100 metres apart and I just aimed them at his mouth and it was as fun as I've made it sound. It was joyful. <laughs> Later on, Hazel Davis and Jenny Landreth share their love of amateur dramatics and talk about Break a Leg, Jenny's book, Extolling the Joys of Amdram. I talked to historian and author Hallie Rubenhold about accuracy in period drama on TV and whether Netflix should put a disclaimer on The Crown. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'll be talking about Tom Allen. Yes, Tom Allen, but also Stonewall's Rainbow Laces campaign. 
I tell you what, when I look at Tom Allen, I always think sport. I know, me too. <laughs> Just the me first too. thing, sport. Do you think if Tom Allen was forced to wear some sort of football strip, he would spontaneously combust? Yes. He's always so dapper. But also, yeah. from the friction, it's a very specific type of fabric, isn't it, a sports shirt? And we fluff up our hair, wash our mouths out with soap and water and put the finishing touches to our life-size Jesus effigy. As in Rated or Dated, we wish Killer Mockumentary dropped a gorgeous a happy 21st. But first, gunships, bags of dicks and some solid good news. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we'd like to know who the fuck cut Boris Johnson's hair. (laughs) Or indeed, what the fuck cut Boris Johnson's hair. I'm going to go with creature without opposable thumbs. Chewed by a squirrel. So, here we are, the last Bush Telegraph before that last Brexit deadline. And four and a half years since the majority of the country voted to leave the EU, the overwhelming majority of us still have absolutely no idea what's going to happen in just checks calendar 17 days time as ever disclaimer that it's monday the 14th of december where i am and where you are on or after the 16th of december it might look way better i'm guessing not but here's to optimism (laughs) (laughs) so what's stopping progress well that of course depends on which newspaper you read If you read the mail, and I'm guessing you don't, Uh it's those bloody Europeans not allowing us to do exactly what we want, how we want it, when we want to. Call in the gunships, (laughs) etc. If you listen to Boris Johnson, and I'm guessing you don't, Mm. Angela Merkel is the problem. If you listen to Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, if talks fail, some of the blame will lie with Boris Johnson's insistence that he could get all this sorted in 11 months rather than the 21 months Theresa May negotiated in the original transition period. Because of course he thought he could do a doubly good job in half the time. He's got previous, hasn't he? He's got loads of medals for that kind of shit. It's like we've gone with the lowest bid on a job isn't it and you never go with the lowest one it's always the second least expensive option yeah we should totally have got more builders in to quote though exactly so here we are talks will continue until new year's eve apparently with barnier hopeful some sort of deal could be done if the uk is happy to do a deal on fish a situation mickey told us all about last week hope you were taking notes It increasingly looks like our headlines on New Year's Eve will read, So long and thanks for all the fish. Nice. They won't. They'll say something about sovereignty and jingoistic bullshit. And if that doesn't sound hopeful, well, apologies, but I'm not sure it is. So, what might a no deal mean for us? The government's original forecasters at the Office for Budget Responsibility have estimated that a no deal Brexit would knock around two percentage points of GDP growth in 2021. And the governor of the Bank of England has said that the long-term effects on the UK economy would be worse than the coronavirus pandemic. Great. Well, I mean, I suppose at least it gives us a frame of reference. And while the government may be talking up an Australia-style arrangement, it's worth noting even Australia is unhappy with the deal it has with the EU (laughs) and is trying to get a better one. It's also worth noting that while the 31st of December may be the deadline for negotiations, that doesn't mean negotiations will be over if they fail, because we still need a deal with the EU. 
God bless us, everyone. No, really. Mm. It's so badly named, isn't it? And I realise that this is way, way down on the list of stuff that has gone wrong with Brexit. But No Deal is so badly named because it isn't No Deal. It should actually be called Very Many Deals. Because Mm. if we don't have one big deal, we just still have to get a lot of tiny deals with individuals. So it's not like the talking stops and we all get to just go and, you know, haul cod out of the Atlantic and slap it on a British plate. It just means there's going to be more talking and it's going to be more complicated and on and on it drags. Yeah. And it's going to keep costing us money. Yeah. But it costs us money if we don't do it and it costs us money if, I don't know, it's just fucked now, isn't it? There was something I saw that did make me laugh, Hannah. And, you know, we've got to take our lols where we can find them. Was it Owen Jones deciding that the real villain in all of this was Femi? No, although that was, I mean, that's just ludicrous. Uh, but, you know, I hope Femi's cult goes well for him. <laughs> uh, no, it was it was the headlines that are just like gunships to guard our fish and the suggestion that maybe they were talking about just one fish. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I had a tough old decision on what to cover this week, to be honest with you. As I speak, London Mayor Sadiq Khan is deeply concerned about the COVID-19 cases spike in the capital and is urging all London schools to follow the lead of those in Greenwich and close immediately until January. Wednesday marks the government's re-evaluation of the tier system, with London and Essex looking likely to move into tier three. Apparently, Hatmancock's making some sort of pre-announcement today, Monday at 3.30pm, And all of this festive cheer piggybacks on the Guardian's discovery that England's test and trace service is pretty much a boondoggle. What with it being subcontracted to various private companies employing inexperienced contact tracers given scant training and under pressure to meet tough targets. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Mm. Christmas, eh? Because, of course, no matter what tier you currently find yourself in, the free-for-all five-day holiday period kicks in on December the 23rd, meaning up to three households can bubble and mix indoors until December the 27th. To be fair to the government, and it's a good thing that this is being recorded, as you'd be hard-pressed to make me believe that I'd ever say that, there is no win when it comes to rules around social mixing over Christmas. Restrictions could be as merciless as they like, but people gonna people, and there's not enough police to enforce them as it is, so Johnson et al. are very much over a barrel there. Anyway, so I thought I'd share something positive that's happening around the ongoing Windrush scandal. It does, of course, come with the massive caveat that the Windrush scandal, which, just to summarise, broke in April 2018, saw the UK government apologise for deportation threats and actual deportations made to Commonwealth citizens' children under Theresa May's hostile environment immigration policies of 2012 remains an upsetting, life-destroying clusterfuck. It's also worth noting that councils and civil society groups are currently fighting government plans to deport all asylum seekers living homeless in the UK. There's still a big bag of dicks, is what I'm saying. However, that glimmer of a silver lining I've been teasing you with... Radical reforms to the Windrush Compensation Scheme are about to be announced by Home Secretary Priti Patel with the aim of making payments swifter and more generous. This comes in response to mounting criticism from the scandal's victims at protracted delays and low offers. And so the minimum payment will rise from £250, which is fuck all in the grand scheme of things, Mm. to £10,000 and the maximum from £10,000 to £100,000. The figure will be higher still in, quote, exceptional circumstances, with money coming through quicker than before. Does it make up for the insane amount of damage done? 
Will it bring back the nine people and counting who have died in the period between making an application for compensation and receiving an offer? Absolutely not. But maybe, just maybe, Hannah, this (laughs) is the government starting to pull its finger out on this issue. As ever, we live in hope because it's all we've got. God bless your optimism, eh? Mm. Mm. Well, here's a bit of good news too. Yay. Because, good God fucking hell, man alive, (laughs) do we need some. Yes. Argentina looks set to become the fourth Latin American country to legalise abortion after a bill submitted by its president, Alberto Fernandez. God, that's an easy name to read. Well done, Alberto, mate. Well done, people of Argentina, for electing a man whose name I can pronounce. Can you take the pills, Fernandez? <laughs> yes. Anyway, this bill was submitted and given the seal of approval by the lower house on Friday. It was quite a solid victory too, 131 to 117 votes. That's good. And while the bill is not quite there yet, as it also needs to be voted on by the Senate at the end of the month, the yes vote was greeted with elation outside of the Congress, where activists have been watching a 20-hour-long debate on a big screen. The move is being seen not only as good news for Argentinian women, but also women in Latin America as a whole, where only Cuba, Uruguay and Guyana allow elective abortions. Elizabeth Gomez Alcorta, again, thanks for the name, Argentina's Minister for Women, Gender and Diversity tweeted, quote, Today we have written a new chapter in our history. Amen to that, eh? Amen to that, indeed. More news in 2021. Ooh. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where it seems reasonable in these very stressful times to ask Hannah what crimes she has committed recently. Hannah? Um, off the top of my head, none. Okay. Okay. I mean, what with COVID and lockdown and Brexit, it does seem unfathomable to me that you haven't done, like, a little pilfering, a tiny joyride mini sexual assault (laughs) come on we're all feeling the pressure it's only natural if you're wondering what the hell i'm wanging on about then it seems you are a better person than darren timpson hunt although to be fair that is a pretty low bar to limbo under and i'd like some sort of biscuit for not going for the obvious rhyming slang here Married Timson Hunt, 55, and a senior government lawyer, was caught using his phone to film up a female passenger's skirt at Embankment Station in London in June 2019. He admitted the charges, apologised on the spot, and magistrates subsequently sentenced him to a 12-month community order. You might think he'd also get struck off. But no, because Timson Hunt had what was deemed a reasonable excuse for his behaviour. So, Darren with one R, why did you commit this devious and premeditated crime? Oh, because because Brexit. Okay. Yeah, Timson Hunt claimed pressure and tiredness from working on the goods-related aspects of Brexit led to his, quote, heat-of-the-moment crime. Hmm. Upskirting, which is defined as taking sexually intrusive pictures under someone's skirt or clothing without their permission, was made a specific criminal offence in February last year, thanks in large part to the tireless campaigning of Gina Martin, and it is punishable by up to two years in prison. And it's definitely something you have to think about doing, given there's an Mm. element of angles and setting up cameras involved. 
Heat of the moment is nicking a marshmallow flump from the local newsagent as a kid to impress your peers and still being really guilty about it 40 years later. (laughs) Not sticking your phone up a woman's skirt and taking four or five photos and two videos. Still. I, for one, feel confident in the legal system, knowing that Timpson Hunt is still able to ensure the law is upheld. Fuck's sake. I mean, yeah, I'm not just going to do a sigh. The interesting thing is, you asked me what laws I've broken recently. Well, I mean, I um, for the purposes of a joke, I said none. But of course, I have, because as everybody knows, I like to have a spliff, which is currently illegal. Now, I say no as well, partly because I don't think it should be illegal. Yeah. And when you see things like this, you think, that guy doesn't think that should be illegal either, does he? Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined by Hallie Rubenhold, historian and author of several excellent non-fiction books, including The Five, which has been all sorts of successful since we last spoke on this podcast. Thank you for joining us, Hallie. Thank you for having me. So, you're a historian. I'm a television reviewer. We've got about 20 minutes, so I reckon we could probably solve the problem of how to tackle historical dramas on television in that time. At least certainly take a crack at it. (laughs) I think probably the best place to start is you have done some historical consultancy work on television series, probably most notably Harlots, which was on this year and was really good. Been on previously, but I think it got much wider audience because it was on the BBC. So I wonder if we could start with you explaining what that sort of work involves, at what stage you get involved in the process, what sort of input you have things on, and how common that is in television i mean how long is a piece of string every project is completely different and each one varies it really depends on any number of issues it depends on who the producers are and what sort of tone they're aiming at you know are they going for something which they really want to be immersed in the time period is a history just window dressing do they want to build the story out of actual real events and so there are lots of different ways to approach it. And I think, you know, for all of the different projects I've been involved with, and, you know, I've been involved with uh, projects that have never made it onto the screen because, unfortunately, that's the nature of the beast with television is more than half of the stuff you work on never sees the light of day. People will come to me at various stages in the production process and some will say, look, I have an idea and I want you to help me develop this idea. And that means the historian's involved straight away and you get involved in in helping to create the narrative and develop the characters, which is really useful. People come to me with scripts that are already written and say, can you polish this and tell me what's wrong with it? Can you tell me what needs to be fixed? What history needs to be injected? Sometimes I'm asked in pre-production to give tutorials to the actors to go over the script to look for bits of dialogue that may seem anachronistic to speak to the costume department and the art directors it could be any number of things a combination of all of those things as well so this debate has erupted again largely because of the release of the fourth series of the crown on netflix It culminated in the Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, saying Netflix should add a disclaimer, saying it was fiction at the start. There were some people that agreed with him, not necessarily wholeheartedly, but along those lines, including Helena Bonham Carter, who's in The Crown, and Elle Spencer, who's Princess Diana's brother. The rest of the world didn't take that suggestion quite so well. There was a lot of 
why are you treating us like kids? We're not stupid. Reactions on Twitter, including from some historians. And although I can sort of agree with that, I will also say the two weeks after a new series of The Crown are released are among my least two favourite weeks a year on Twitter, (laughs) which is saying something. Because they are the weeks that you see the hottest of the hot history takes, the things that are frankly mad. I saw someone, quite a large name American journalist, tweeting something about the IRA. And I thought, I wonder how many tweets I have to count back Mm. before I see I'm watching The Crown. And it was three tweets. And so... Although I agree that people shouldn't be treated like children, I do also agree that some people do. So it, it's a very difficult line to take. So what, yeah. what? how do you feel about the idea? Well, it's a difficult line to take, isn't it? I mean, I think we're dealing with a number of different subjects here. To conflate them all is a mistake. And I think specifically with a series which is about history which took place within living memory of good many people Mm. and is very much a part of our popular culture i mean princess diana and the royal family and everybody feels they own a piece of that we're treading around very dangerous territory because we're also reconstructing a world fictionally on television where there are people still alive so it's more a case of i think crossing that line, blurring that line in terms of news events, recent history, popular culture. And I do think, in all honesty, you know, I have spoken to people who have said, did they really have that conversation? Mm. I have thought, I wonder if they had a conversation. You know, obviously, (laughs) I know to look it up. But, you know, it is really important to bear in mind we live in a time where how many Millions of people believe that Donald Trump won the American election. Yeah. Yeah. People cannot trust the information coming through on their screens. Mm. And I think by poo-pooing that, I think, you know, you've really got your head in the sand because this is a major issue. And if we are then projecting onto the royal family another story, which may or may not have happened, people will get confused. People are confused by things happening every day because they don't know what is truth and what is fiction or what is an alternative fact. We have to face this and we have to deal with it. A couple of interesting points there. The first, I I very much agree, because there's sort of there's three points here of who do you need to be responsible to? You sort of need to be responsible to the people you're portraying, which, like you say, if they're still alive or their children are still alive, that's quite important. The second thing, you kind of have a responsibility to the viewer. You know, are you massively misinforming them? But I also feel like you have some, I don't know, more nebulous sort of responsibility just to history because I am that sort of person. I like things to be correct. Because actually some of the stuff that I've gone off and learned stuff about has come to me through other forms of popular culture. So, for example, I quite often say this. One of the best nonfiction books I've ever read is something called No Cause for Indictment, written by Ronald Parambo. And it's his account of the riots in New Jersey. And I discovered that book existed because after watching The Sopranos for years and keep hearing Tony say about the Newark riots, I was like, I wonder what they were. And I Googled it and I went down a rabbit hole and I found out this really interesting stuff. 
So I kind of like the idea that history would inspire people to Google, but at the same point, lots of people just don't Google, do they? They just... No, a lot of people don't Google. And then the other issue is we live in a society where a lot of people are having a very hard time distinguishing between what is a reliable source for information and Mm. what isn't. I don't want to cast aspersions at Wikipedia necessarily, but... Wikipedia tends to be the first place anyone goes when they want to find out about something. And I've had (laughs) recent experiences with people on Wikipedia. Wikipedia is often run by people who feel they own that information and will not accept a variety of different ways of looking at a subject or will prevent anything that might be considered controversial, even if it's new scholarship, from Mm. making its way onto Wikipedia. So, you know, when you watch The Crown and you think, oh God, is that is that really what happened with Diana? Was it like that? And then you go and Google Diana, you don't even know if what you're seeing on Wikipedia is correct. Yeah. Or even if, you know, what I do, I go straight down to the bottom and look at all the sources. Yeah. Well, what are the sources? And a lot of times, not even the most reliable source is no. being cited. No. Or lots um, of 404 error pages, I find. Yes. You go, yeah. go down there. Exactly. So it is a minefield. And and I think we do have to be very mindful of this. I think as well, the objection to putting something up at the start, I find slightly odd because we put loads of stuff up at the start. We put all sorts of warnings. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, in fact, the crown has one the whole way through in this series about eating disorders. And also, if we've got a television series that's actually based on something true, they quite often put are based on true events because they actually want to use it to their advantage. They want to say, hey, this story's so so mad, it actually happened. Yeah. So the other way around, people don't have an objection to it being there. It's very complicated. But, you know, as we were saying, I think the real problem is where it becomes very tricky is where you're dealing with people who are still alive today. Yeah. Because, I mean, this isn't new. People have been saying, oh, do you realise someone was wearing a digital watch in Ben-Hur since they made <laughs> Ben-Hur? Do you know what I mean? It's been... It's been years and years. And that sort of stuff doesn't bother me as much because I think that that appeals to pedants. And I'm not really a pedant. I didn't care that there was a plastic drain pipe that you could see in the White Queen. I didn't care about that. (laughs) You know, that's just something that someone forgot to airbrush out or whatever. It doesn't affect it. What I care about is other stuff. And an example I use quite a lot is in 2004, the BBC made a drama series called Gunpowder, Treason and Plot, which was about Scottish monarchs and one of them was about Mary Queen of Scots and in it Mary Queen of Scots escapes runs off with her lover Bothwell for some sexy times and they get married and then they split up and it's all very tragic and what actually happened although there is still a very much history he said she said going on here unsurprisingly is that he abducted her and Mm. raped her and forced her to marry him and the idea that a BBC drama was putting that out made me incand and still makes me incandescent when I think about it. I don't care about the drain pipe. I care about <laughs> I care about the re- total rewriting of a woman's history. That well, really bothers I, me. I, I feel that way too. This is the problem. When historical drama is being created, I have some strong feelings about, you know, as producers, as writers, if you're not interested in history, then you shouldn't do a period mm. drama. I've spoken to a lot of producers who who feel like the history gets in the way of the drama. But if you understand the history and if you understand the impediments it places in the path of a character, you realise 
it creates natural dramatic tension. Mm. You have to learn to use that in a way which is viable within the medium. And But if you don't understand history and you don't understand what it is, and a lot of people think history is just reading books and having a lot of facts at your yeah. fingertips. It's not. It's about trying to understand what happened and what this world was like and what people were like who lived in this. It's like another planet or it's like trying to figure out you know, another culture and and another culture's practices. And if you don't understand that other culture, then the things you're saying about it are going to be wrong. Yeah. You're going to get it wrong, especially if you have no desire to understand that other culture. Mm. It can be used as a, a vessel for a certain form of politics in as much as you quite often imbue certain events this would be small P politics, but actually also big P politics sometimes as well. Small events are imbued with more dramatic significance because what you need, this happens in biopics a lot, is what you need mm. is a reason for that character that, to then go on and yeah. behave the way they behaved. And it could just be because they were a dick. Yeah, but, well, but... absolutely. And I think this is where a historical consultant can really come in. And I've worked in this capacity where you're being asked by the writer, you know, we need something to happen. We, you know, why would this character do X, Y, or Z? And I would look at the situation and say, look, okay, well, what we know about the character is X. What were this person's options at this particular time? How could they maneuver out of this? Well, there's option one or option two or maybe option three. And usually one of those options will come up trumps for the writer will say, yeah, actually, in fact, I never even thought about that. I never even thought that that would be a problem. And therefore that creates another set of problems, which is great in drama because you want a lot of problems. Yeah, definitely. Maybe I'm being hypocritical here, but there are certain things that are ahistorical that don't bother me. For example, Deadwood, one of my, well, actually not one of mine, my absolute favorite series uses ahistorical language. Because I don't, I don't know whether they do. I mean, there's some, you know, you can create a language which feels period appropriate. Exactly. Exactly and, that. And they do it. They because do the swearing. It. David Milch said when he went back and looked at how they swore in the Wild West, they said things like Dagnamit. And he was yeah. like, that was just not going to work. You can't have someone stabbing someone to death saying, darn to it. He's like, it just, people would just laugh at it because it sounds like a Coen Brothers thing now. Yeah, yeah. So he had to have, he had to replace those words with cocksucker and all of those words because our sensibilities weren't adapted to it. But but then again, there's a really fine line and you can take it too far. And then like, I'm, I'm going to cite Downton Abbey, I'm afraid, in one, one particular historical language clanger that just made my skin crawl, which was the serving maid who marries the... What is it? He's the the gentleman's valet. The two I've of actually them. never seen Downton Abbey. Okay, so anyway, so they get married, you know, and or they want to get married, and you know, she's bemoaning the fact that they're not married, and she says, "Well, I just want to get married and start a family," and it's that phrase, "start a family," that made me just <laughs> scream because marriage in nineteen twenty yeah. meant you start a family on your wedding night. And as a woman, you really don't have a choice when yeah. the children come. Yeah. And it's not about, oh, I, I want to get married so we can have children. It's, you know, being married and being a wife and being a mother happens on that moment, on your wedding night, and there on after. And, and even, my God, you know, I'm I actually, right now, I'm watching the dramatization of Elena Ferrante's book, My Brilliant Friend, which oh, right, yeah. 
did. And that takes place in Naples during the 50s and 60s. And the lives of those women and what it was like, and their lives could have been lives that happened 100 years earlier. They hadn't changed. Mm. But that's fascinating because, again, you look at the position of women, and that's a historical drama. And that's rooted in her, her fiction, which I think is semi-autobiographical. But again, you know, you get married even in the 1960s in Italy mm. and you had to produce a child as yeah. soon as you got married. Some of the best historical dramas I've seen recently have been based on books. I wonder maybe if that's because the author did quite a lot of the legwork in the world building maybe as yeah. part of the reason yeah. they're successful. But I really loved The Good Lord Bird, which is on Sky at the moment. Which oh, is- that's great it's, I love it it's really great and it's um just for anyone who doesn't know what it's about it's about the raid on the armory at Harper's Ferry that started the civil war essentially and the other one is the terror the first series of the terror oh, which is the disappearance oh of the terror and the Erebus and what I love about both of those things is they are really good on what we know mm. what we know so the costumes the accents the the, the historical context all of that is correct so it means the stuff that we don't know, they've we been able to run a bit wild with because yeah. it's grounded in this really authentic feeling mm-hmm. drama. And they're both totally brilliant. I would say the terror is one of the most commendable and incredible bits of historical drama that I have seen in a long time. No and one's seen it. It's so disappointing. But it's, it works on so many different levels. It works as, and I'm not going to give any spoilers away. I mean, it's like, I love Master and Commander. It's one of my all-time favorite yeah. films because of the world of the ship and the way in which the, the men refer to each other. You get this really entrenched sense of Victorian rank on ship, mm. which is so, like, so true. Mm. Absolutely. That world is real. And for a historian, that passes muster completely. It's, it was amazing. But then there's this, and I'm not, again, this is not a spoiler. There's a ghost story in this. And that ghost story is even a Victorian-style yeah. ghost story. So it's even within keeping of a Victorian genre. And it's it's magnificent. It's absolutely amazing. If you haven't seen it, go hunt it down. I think it's on Amazon. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I've been saying this on the podcast for ages because it has been, uh, until recently, it was quite hard to get hold of. Mm-hmm. What are some examples of some good historical dramas that you've enjoyed? Well, that, that's a very good example. Mad Men, I think, is... Oh, I love Mad Men. Classic. And again, he worked... Um, oh, gosh, why, am I, why have I forgotten the producer's name? Matt um, Wiener. Yeah. He worked, I was reading, he worked it from the history up. So he went deep into the 1960s. He was very obsessed with the 1960s. But, you know, how he prepared the actors, he said, you know, go home and talk to your parents and find out what their experiences were like. You know, really talk to people who lived through it. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I had, as I was over the years that I was watching Mad Men, some of the most incredible conversations with my parents who were the same ages as the younger cast members working in Stone Cooper and they would have had similar experiences and just the most incredible conversations with them about what it was like living in America in the 1960s. Yeah. Mad Men, I think, is is just absolutely incredible. I mean, I think Deadwood is another great example. You and I should watch some TV together, Alice. I know. <laughs> we, we, we really, really should. I should have moved in with you in lockdown. <laughs> I know. <laughs> We'd have a great time. Oh, God. And then there are those that really... For me, don't do it. And 
I'll tell you why things don't do it for me. What what I feel personally, they get wrong. But again, you know, this may be other people's cup of tea. Other people may like it. It's things like when they try to make things so modern and so relevant that you're just not getting the world. You're not there. You're mm. not disappearing into that world. You don't believe that world because that world is really us then. The past isn't us then. Mm. It's a kind of sloppy, lazy way of trying to understand the past. You know, it's the past as window dressing rather than you want to go there, then go there. Go deep into it. Yeah, agreed. Because Americans love costume dramas. Mm. You do wonder whether people just make costume dramas just to sell to that market rather than just to show to us, if that makes sense. Yeah, I I, I think so. And, you know, there are there are a number of, of costume dramas that are like that, that it's it's just all about, you know, the frocks and the he said, she said, mm. you know, it's that gossip girl, you know, in the 16th century or something like yeah. that. I've watched about 10 minutes of something called Rain, which was, a, again, about Mary Queen of Scots. And it was like, it was like the Tudors in prom dresses. That may be somebody else's thing. It's not my thing. Well, I do, I do have to say, um, my, I had a flatmate who had a particular similar sense of humour to me. We used to watch the Tudors just to roar laughing at oh it. Just to, just, to, <laughs> just to be like, how is he still like, only weighs about 12 stone when, <laughs> when at this point in his life he was morbidly obese. But he have ripped abs as yeah, well. exactly that. <laughs> Hallie, have you got anything to plug? What is, your, what is your latest project? Have you got anything you can tell us about that you're working oh. on? Gosh, well, you know, I mean, with COVID, you know, there's all sorts of stuff hanging in the wings. Well, I'm hoping that there will be The Five as a drama for the BBC. So so we're hoping, I mean, it's in development, but, you know, so many projects have just been put on pause during this COVID crisis. And obviously, we just don't know what's going to happen when we come out of it. That's great. I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment about the murder of Belle Elmore by her husband, Dr. Crippen. So Ooh, it's the murder of 1910. But I'm looking at it's it's an incredible story about incredibly empowered women during the Edwardian era that we would not have even imagined. These women are extraordinary. And I want to turn the whole concept of our traditional true crime narrative on its head. And it's traditionally about a male hero catching a male villain and making the world safe. But if we don't look at it that way, if we look at it in another way, we see how much this traditional male narrative, which focuses on men and what men do, how much that misses of what the women's experiences are. Yeah. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. Thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure. You're very, very welcome. I'm Hazel Davis and I'm talking to Jenny Landreth about her brilliant new memoir, Break a Leg, a memoir, manifesto and celebration out now on Chatterwell Windows. So hi, Jenny. Hi, Hazel. 
this book which I was reading in the bath last night and I love it it's brilliant it's, it's as somebody who is fond of a little bit of um, amateur dramatics it, it speaks to me so so brilliantly however what we have to go straight in really with uh, the, the very idea of a book about Amdram even I have to be completely honest my editor went oh Amdram why does it elicit that response why does the words Amdram elicit an eye roll and a ugh well, it, it, it only does from people who aren't involved in it, obviously, because uh, because there's millions of people who are involved in it who don't think that. But mm-hmm. I think that the public perception is that Andram is one very narrow thing, which is fusty old ladies hanging out doing plays that are really outdated and probably offensive mm-hmm. in, in dusty old halls. And you pay seven pounds and you get to sit and then you get a horrible cup of tea in the interval and it's all it's all miserable. And of course... That isn't what Amdram is at all. People who who aren't involved in it have a very, very narrow perception of what it is. So the whole point of this book really was to say, actually, that is a very small portion of what it is, for sure. But actually, there's a whole huge range of things going on under the Amdram banner uh, that really should be celebrated as part of our cultural landscape. I mean, why is it? Why do we have this ridiculous um, perspective on it? Is it? Is it? Because it's sitcoms, isn't it? It's every single sitcom, every single you know, The Good Life and things like that. Amdram is always used as a sort of prop, isn't it? Is that? Yes, it is. And actually, and actually, there's quite a few plays and stuff that are about Amdram. You know, kind of looking looking at itself, and they all deal with the same kind of perceptions. The scenery falls down, people are rubbish. <laughs> it's all hopeless. Uh, and it just doesn't reflect the reality at all. But there's, it's a very outdated, old-fashioned view of what it is. And actually, it's, it's moved on dramatically from, from that perception. But we don't, I mean, we don't do the same for amateur choirs and orchestras, do we? Because that's another world that I move in. And it feels like that. that's fine. You know, everyone's happy if you, can play, if you play violin at a local orchestra. That's cool. But if you do a play, then it's not. It's, well, there's it's, all, there's, it's, it's the one area where there's a really strict delineation, I think. I, I talk about it a tiny bit in the book, that actually in music, there's no really strict delineation, for instance, as you say, between professional and amateur. But in theatre, there's a real, there's a really strict delineation. And I, I don't know who's doing that gate, gatekeeping, oh, yeah. but there is definitely a sense of gatekeeping, whereas you know this is amateur this is professional and often the the boundaries are very blurred you know there's lots of small fringe professional companies who probably make as much money as amateur companies do but they Mm. market themselves differently and see themselves differently and call themselves professionals so it's seen in an entirely different light but it's the only art form I think where that really happens you don't get people saying well you're an amateur artist and therefore (laughs) your work must be rated in a in a in an entirely different way it's only in theatre that that really strict delineation appears Mm. to happen which is weird it's just weird it is weird and and the term amdram I know you discussed you've discussed this slightly before it that has some people don't like calling it amdram is that still the case is that is that part yeah, of the problem that is, that is the case and actually i sometimes think that amateurs aren't helping themselves in in that matter but i completely understand why you know because they've seen this perception around it and what they then have to say is actually we're not that we're non-professional or we're community hmm. uh, but i my, my view is just reclaim the word you're doing good work reclaim it proudly declare yourselves to be amateur because the word amateur means doing it for love from the heart 
So that's where its roots are. And, and people should be proud of that rather than trying to distance themselves from it. But again, it's all down to the perceptions of, of what amateur means, which no. means second rate. And it's just not true. No, absolutely. And and the book is kind of told, This is, it's a history of amateur dramatics via your parents' story. So so you grew up in the world of amateur dramatics and your parents met and fell in love doing Amdram, which is just a really lovely story. And I love the fact that they met and then took it in turns to be in plays to, to deal with childcare, which is just so romantic and lovely so tell me a little bit about their story and how, how they met yes they met together in the in the 1950s both as keen members of highbury little theater in sutton coalfield which is a suburb of birmingham although people from sutton coalfield are very keen not to describe themselves in those terms so that that's how they met and they they might well have met in other circumstances my father was a dentist so it may well have been that my mum would have met him you know as a patient but she didn't she met him in the theater yeah, yeah, so they met in the theatre in the 1950s and got married and had kids. And it was kind of inevitable that we would all be um, active participants ourselves. I don't, I don't feel we really had much of a choice about that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we, we, were, we were happy to do that. That's, you know, we, we all found our feet on, on the stage at, at Highbury. Somebody said to me, didn't you ever feel like rebelling against your parents by not being involved in amateur theatre? But it never felt like it was theirs for me to rebel against it always felt like it was ours it belonged to all of us in different ways I had you know I made my own impact I had my own story there as much as as they had theirs so yeah no it was it was definitely a family affair it's kind of like growing up in the church isn't it or growing up as in a kind of musical because I, I my children are growing up in a very musical world and I don't think it's even occurred to them that other people don't grow up in that world because that's just what you know isn't it I guess Yes, and there's no point rebelling against something that you feel you get real pleasure and satisfaction from. I think even as a teenager, you kind of realise, well, that would be fairly pointless to rebel against this thing that has given me a real real sense of feeling, a real sense of belonging. You know, what's what's the point of rebelling against that? It doesn't belong to my parents. It belongs to everybody. I'm in for it. I'm for it <laughs> yet in the book you you've kind of you talk about having moved away from it and 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 so the the story is kind of you going back and following the the, the theater company so what kind of took you in a slightly different direction as an adult uh well part well i did uh, because of going to highbury i then did a drama degree um and did try and you know went for probably a total of about three auditions uh to to try and have a professional career but i think really i just didn't have i i don't think probably i had i had the talent for it and I did I didn't quite have the sticking power I think to be a professional I mean I know people really at the top of the game and still the levels of rejection you you go through are still really huge and I don't think I was quite emotionally robust enough for that and and probably not talented enough for that so I you know found myself kind of theatrically adjacent I, I always worked in the creative industries since I came to London after my degree um, and that's been absolutely fine for me. And now I've kind of found my metier in writing, which I'm very, very happy in. I occasionally kind of think, well, maybe I'll be discovered one day, you know, walking, walking the dog through the park or, or whatever. But, um, you know, you know, you never know that might happen. But um, I'm not I'm not quite holding out, <laughs> holding out hope for it in the same way, because I have a I have a really happy creative life doing what I'm doing. So. It's all worked out fine in the end. <laughs> when you see a stage, though, like when you followed the group, did you not think, oh, I could be up on there? Did you not feel a hankering to sort of leap on stage oh, and join them? Oh, to- totally. <laughs> I just had this tiny little thing that, I, I mean, because one of the, part of the story is that they can't find some members of the cast. And I had mm. this total image that they'd 
the, the light, the spotlight would fall on me, meekly and humbly sitting in the corner, and they go, Jenny, you give it a go, and I go, oh, okay, and then I'd blow them all off stage and be amazing. Um, <laughs> but that didn't happen. Uh, so, yeah, I've, yeah. When, whenever I go and see something, I kind of always think maybe that could be me, maybe that could be me. And I think lots of people who have had any kind of theatrical experience will will sometimes see themselves on stage and just go, oh, I wonder, I wonder what would have happened if I'd really taken that path. But I'm not. I'm not a kind of. I'm not a look backer in in that way. So, yeah, just grateful for what I've got rather than what I haven't got. Sounds <laughs> very kind of humble and accepting, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, very, very gracious, and it will. Um, so, I mean, this is inevitable, really. That COVID is obviously having a huge impact on uh, the theatre industry. Um, it feels to me, based on no evidence or research whatsoever, that the smaller groups are going to be the ones that fare better because they've kind of got less to lose. Is that something that you're feeling that smaller groups are going to kind of rise a bit, a bit stronger? Throughout well, this? I think I think it's kind of I think it really depends on 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 several things. Uh, from what from what I can observe is there's there's three kind of strands. There's people like my mum who's still an active member of an amateur company, who has no access to any tech through her personal mm. choice. Um, so she can't get involved in any stuff that's online. Um, and you, you know I don't I don't think would feel comfortable with that. It would be a really big leap for her to yeah. suddenly take all that on board. But there's other other small companies that actually own their own buildings. You know there's there's a group called the Little Theatre Guild which which uh, are, are a body that support amateur theatre companies with their own buildings. So I think for those buildings to suddenly be lie completely dormant is, yeah. is very problematic. You know, they've got no income and how they're going to sustain is, is as problematic for them as it is for professional companies. But then there are other groups um, with lots of people in them who've really engaged fully, really stepped up with the whole online experience. There's, you know, I've talked to a few people about this and they've done outdoor socially distanced performances. They've encouraged members to to learn new skills like filming and editing. Lots of new writing has been happening. Lots of um, performances online of monologues or socially distanced performances, uh, rehearsals, workshops, masterclasses. You know, there's been a huge kind of growth in that in amateur theatre. And of course, those people are almost luckier than the professionals in that they're not doing it to earn a living. So it's not, you know, they're doing it outside of their professional lives. So they have almost a bonus, I'd say, in in being able to keep producing this material and learning and and growing through it, which is is great. There's been so much activity online. It's really heartening to see. It's brilliant. And it does feel to me as though people are just desperate to be near each other, aren't they? As someone who plays in lots of musical groups, just the idea of being close to somebody else and, and not having to go to a pub or not having to go to a restaurant or in a school or workplace, but just being near people doing something is, is just really more desirable than ever, I think, isn't it? Interacting yeah, I, think, with I think so. I mean, obviously you miss, you know, the one thing about doing a, a theatrical performance the the, the shared adrenaline in in that group with with everybody mm. from the people doing the prompting and the props and the, doing the sound or lights and the people on stage and the people in front of the house there's a lot of shared adrenaline which obviously a, a, you know an online zoom production just can't even begin to replicate so i think everybody's missing that kind of adrenalized buzz of mm. of hanging out together which is awful uh, you know but um it's going on across the country so i guess 
everybody's in the same boat which is slightly helpful I don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe um, and if you're if you're gonna kind of give a, a plug for Amdram what if somebody's kind of always fancied doing it and obviously now is it's difficult to, to take it up right now but if someone's always fancied it but been a bit scared been a bit like that that world isn't for me or I don't know how to access that world what advice would you give them I'd say go along and find a local group because there will be at least one. Wherever you are, there will be at least one or two. You will find people like you. And the the great thing is those people might not look how you expect they're going to look. They, you know, in every other respect, you might not agree with their politics. You might be in a different age range. You might be, you know, you might be very different from them in, in other social respects. But you... You can have a shared endeavour with uh, with this one particular thing, which is making theatre. And there will be people in your street, in your life, already doing it. And it will provide uh, a huge sense of achievement and joy. That uh, The one thing that absolutely rang through from everybody is the sense of joy that it brings them. Mm. Um, and I think that's such a valuable thing. I, st- I started off being, you know, my normal kind of snippy, cynical, sarcastic self when I started this book and I just had to shed that mantle as I went along because people just kept talking about joy and it feels or at the start it felt slightly naff but by the end I was fully Mm -hmm. embracing the joy (laughs) Um, and I think if you can find people in your local area who are also experiencing that I just say go for it you know you don't have to be particularly bold you don't have to be particularly show-offy you don't have to be a particular kind of person there'll be something that you can do in that group that suits you and fits your skills or teaches you new ones brilliant thank you you play ball like a girl go on do one kid jenny off the blocks welcome to jenny off the blocks that time of the week where we ask do our eyes deceive us as we discuss all things women's sport so this isn't strictly speaking women's sports so much as it is all sport, but then that's very much the point on this particular issue. Eagle-eyed sports fans among us may have noticed a familiar face on the Sky Sports news coverage of Charlton Athletics match versus AFC Wimbledon last Saturday, because I'm sure you were all watching out for that, and we won 5-2, thanks for asking. Assisting TV presenter Mark McAdam with the commentary was none other than a friend of standard issue Tom Allen, who was providing top insights such as... Jake Foster, Kaysky, scored, did he Mark? Did he oh, we didn't think it would go in, but it did, and because uh, it went from one player to the other, and then he got it in, and um, and I think that was everybody was so pleased. Charlton on the break, you get Johnny Williams, and oh! Johnny Williams has scored. Williams Absolutely a stunning stuff. I think it's Chris Gunn to the right back. He's got Tom on his face down the right hand side. Tom wasn't just there for shits and giggles, however, he was there as part of Stonewall's Rainbow Laces campaign, which, says the charity, aims to make sport everyone's game and champion inclusion for the LGBTQ plus community in sport. And a very good job the campaign has done too. Tom's commentary provided a huge reaction on social media, with some jeb ends not taking too kindly, but largely with a huge wave of support from people saying they'd like to see more of this kind of commentary. Now, as much as Tom's commentary was funny, he is a comedian after all, I do think there's a more serious point here, and I think the reaction demonstrates the aims of the campaign brilliantly, in fact. I personally think there has historically been a huge failure by sports commentators and journalists, in that the conversations around sport that are presented by them 
only appealed to one very, very set demographic, largely white and almost exclusively straight men. The conversation isn't aimed at you if you don't fall within that demographic. And then if you don't get it, the insinuation is that you don't get support, you don't understand it, it isn't for you. Whereas I would say that if it doesn't appeal to you, then they haven't done a good enough job of trying to engage you. Now, I've sat in rooms with other sports journalists, all men, who have openly scoffed at me when I've shrugged in response to a question like, top five goals ever in the United v Liverpool fixture since 1977. I, I don't have an answer because I couldn't give even part of a shit about the question. It doesn't interest me. Sport doesn't appeal to me in that particular way, but it does appeal to me in other ways. And I think it might appeal to lots more people if we opened up the conversation and let some other voices take part, which is why when one of my Twitter followers, shout out Tim, let's see if he listens to this podcast, said that they'd like to see more of this, I completely agree. And I think that this is exactly the point of the campaign. So well done, Tom. Well done, Sky Sports. And well done, Stonewall. So where else are we seeing change in sports this week? Let's head over to Australia, where the National Governing Body for Netball, Netball Australia, see what you did there, has just released its State of the Game report, which found that there is an urgent need to change players' kits. You know, the teeny tiny little sleeveless dresses that they wear. So the report found that there's more to this than just chilly arms, and in fact that the dress actually puts some young girls off playing. I feel like this should be the biggest... Hang on, bear shit in the woods moment ever, to be honest. But there you go. I thought it was pretty well established that young girls are turned off sport by puberty and self-consciousness around their bodies and all of that kind of caper. Big news, apparently, for the governing body, which says we need to be creative in how we include everyone in our sport. For some people, the uniform is an issue and allowing them to wear different clothes would be a simple fix. Aye, so fix it. I talk about this quite a lot on the podcast, but I am massively supportive of what they've done in a really short amount of time. So the W Series, the all-female motor racing series, has announced its calendar for next season, which you may have heard will be in partnership with Formula One, which means that eight of the series races will be held as Formula One support races. And that's an incredible opportunity to help spread the word and introduce the series to a whole new audience. And when I said the other week that the W Series had completely revolutionised women's motorsport, I wasn't joking. I think even five years ago, to have imagined this would have been crazy. So those eight race locations include Austin and Mexico City, races which had been due to take place alongside this year's US and Mexican Grand Prix, thanks COVID, and will also now include the British Grand Prix at the legendary Silverstone Racecourse on July 17th. So let's hope we're out of our various tiers by then and able to go and watch. Finally, to end end on more good news we wish the very best of luck to this year's only female sports personality of the year contender jockey holly doyle who has also been named the sunday times sportswoman of the year after breaking her own record for the number of winners ridden by a british woman in a year becoming the first woman to ride five winners on the same card taking her first royal ascot victory in the champion sprint and then winning another one in the long distance cup at the same event Spotty will take place on Sunday and voting will be open to the public during the broadcast. And guys, you know what to do. That's all for me this year. Well, for sport anyway, with a few slightly different podcasts coming up over the festive season. I'll be back in 2021 with more women's sport. And fingers crossed, after the slight washout that has been 2020, we'll be seeing a lot more of it next year. Welcome to Rated or Dated. This week's pick came from our Mixter Noonan, Mickey. What film had us dancing with Jesus this week? Well, Jesus loves a winner, but this week I'm rooting for the underdog as we watch 1999's Pitch Black, wronger than wrong teen comedy Drop Dead Gorgeous. 
It bombed at the box office, was torn apart by critics and disappeared into out-of-print DVD No Man's Land for nigh on 20 years. And yet, and yet, Drop Dead Gorgeous is the epitome of a beloved cult classic. Endlessly quotable, packed with before-they-were-famous star turns and one of the most smartest movies in the teen film pantheon. It's very much the bad seed mind and does not miss any opportunity to be in supreme bad taste. And I'm talking the sort of bad taste that off-shellfish might leave in the mouths of an entire soon-to-be-vomiting-and-shitting beauty pageant. Written by Lona Williams and directed by Michael Patrick Jan, who has never directed a full-length feature film since this, his debut, Drop Dead Gorgeous showcases the killer talents of Kirsten Dunst, Alison Janney, Brittany Murphy, Ellen Barkin... Kirsty Alley and Amy Adams in her first movie role. Would you just look at all those amazing, funny roles for women? There's never been such times. To the plot, which refreshingly eschews any kind of heteronormative romance bollocks. Instead, bodies pile up as teen girls in the small Minnesota town of Mount Rose compete to be Sarah Rose Cosmetics' American teen princess. We follow the action mockumentary style as Amber Atkins, that's Kirsten Dunst, tap dances her arse off for a shot at a scholarship that will allow her to leave Mount Rose and follow her dream to become a journalist, like other one-time beauty queen Diane Sawyer. But competition is stiff, particularly from thoroughbred beauty queen in the making Becky Ann Lehman, which is Denise Richards, born for this thanks to pushy former beauty queen mom Gladys, a superbly demented Kirsty Alley, and a cute trick with the big JC up her sequin sleeve. It absolutely pulls no punches, perhaps best encapsulated by a mahogany-hued Loretta, which is Alison Jenny, who tells sweet, earnest Amber, You are a good person. Good things happen to good people. Really? asks Amber. No, it's pure bullshit. You're lucky as hell, so you might as well enjoy it. So I have wanged on for ages, and I'm fairly sure revealed my cards in how I feel about this film. So, Hannah, Jen, had you seen it before, and what did you make of it? Who would like to go first? Hannah... I had seen it before several times. I'm quite a big fan. I like dark stuff. and This goes way too far on a number of occasions that makes me think if it was released now, it would be absolutely pulled from the cinema because people would be outraged by it. But yeah, I had seen it before and I absolutely love it. And it was nice to watch it again last night because I probably haven't seen it for a couple of years. So it was far enough away that you go, oh yeah, I forgot that line. I forgot that line. One thing that's always worth mentioning and it shouldn't matter is the absolute genius casting of Kirsty Alley and Denise Richards as mother and daughter when they look alike mm. and Ellen Barkin and Kirsten Dunst as mother and daughter when they look alike yeah it feels oddly authentic for something that is daft as fuck it's really interesting and quite right of you to comment that if it was released today you'd expect a backlash there's certainly a character that gets called a name that I'm not going to even say on the podcast which is horrific and actually shows how fast language can need to be changed because it was only 21 years ago but interestingly when it had its 20th birthday last year no one mentioned it in an absolute plethora of articles singing its praises. Really? Yeah. That surprises me. I was super surprised. Because also the anorexia jokes are not something that would happen now. What character are you talking about? Mike McShane's younger brother. Oh, right, yeah. I did, yeah, because I was a bit like, when they said that, I was a bit like, oh, wow. Yeah, the the bit you're talking about, the the words that is used about that, I've 
felt I haven't seen it before. I, this is the first time I'd seen it, and maybe it is just like the modern eye or whatever mm-hmm. on it. But I found the way his character was portrayed as not very nice. Yeah, it's horrible. Uh, yeah, and um, I thought that was not ideal. I also thought the way the I think they're Japanese. The Japanese family are portrayed as a bit. I I don't think that would fly now either i thought it was a little bit racist but apart from that i don't know i didn't i guess i hadn't watched it before so i didn't have like a an affection for it already i thought kirstie alley was really good i liked her i was confused by their accents what is that it's like minnesota <laughs> yeah. yeah is it because i i don't know what a minnesota accent like is. Fargo. <laughs> yeah Oh. No, I've not seen Fargo. So I was a bit like, oh, what's what's this accent? I'm confused. It's bang on. Like it's it. absolutely yeah. bang on as a Minnesota accent. I found it very entertaining. It is, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I did wonder, is that what a Minnesota accent sounds like? I just, I don't know. Minnesota? I can't, I can't think of ever having heard one. <laughs> it's so sing-song. Yeah. Like they're surprised well, by everything. they were Swedish or something like that. The Squareheads in Deadwood all went to Minnesota, <laughs> yeah. didn't they? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Did you not find it funny, Jen? It's just so, so funny. I think it's so funny. I found bits of it funny. I found bits of it funny, but I didn't find it consistently funny. Some of the lines in it are just... I decided last night that my favourite line is when Ellen Birkin says to Kirsten Dunst, do you want to look like you've been rode hard and put away wet? (laughs) (laughs) I was honking like a goose. I can't even get it out. It's so funny. And Alison Jenny's got some absolute just corkers. There's a bit where she goes, thank God for bungee ropes, when she's talking, when they're talking about bringing her from the hospital strapped to the back of the truck. Alison Jenny is, I can't think of anything that I've seen her in that I didn't think was excellent, to be fair. Like, she's, you know, she's good value, isn't yeah. she? She's always... I feel like this is sort of a warm-up for her brilliant performance in I, Tonya. Yeah. <gasps> I forgot yeah. about that. Oh my god! Uh, yeah. I watched again recently and is brilliant. But if, if I could just mm. go to one of the things that I think is really, really positive about this, and you kind of touched on it sense. earlier, is outside of all of this, this is taking the piss out of beauty pageants, but it's not taking the piss out of girls that go into beauty pageants. Yes, exactly that. And I think it's really important because. They are all in it. for re- Most of them are in it for a really clear reason. One of them thinks it will help her become an actress. Most of them are in it for the scholarship or because they have a, a hope that they will leapfrog onto something else. Only Amy Adams has any real interest in doing it for, to impress a boy. But that's already her boyfriend. And apart from the fact that, that Denise Richards, who is so just fucking spectacular in this. She's amazing. Apart from the fact that everybody hates her, they all like each other and get on and support each other. And it's really lovely. And it makes me, actually watching it makes me quite sad because I think it's a reminder of how fucking amazing Brittany Murphy was and what a massive loss she was at such a young age. She, yeah, she was an incredible That laugh is just incredible. That is kind of... Babs Windsor, who's also died this week, that kind of just exuberantly mm. filthy laugh. And infectious. Yeah. It's really infectious, which obviously isn't a, a word I want to throw about mm. at this time. But it is. And also, just touching on what you just said, Hannah, what is great about this beauty pageant, and I think is really positive as well, is obviously, like, Denise Richards is gorgeous looking. Kirsten Dunst is cute. You know, she's a cute girl. And Brittany Murphy was very pretty, but she isn't made to look super pretty in this film. And some of the girls aren't what you would class as Hollywood pretty. 
at all and they're not all Hollywood slender as, as you would imagine to see in a beauty pageant and it isn't just about their looks it's about like what what skill they're going to bring to mm-hmm. to the floor and you know how well they do a little bit of a dance and yeah I thought that was really positive too and there's no there's no boy girl relationship which is so refreshing to watch yeah absolutely because obviously it's hunting season yeah. so we say goodbye to him fairly quickly and I think it really hits the absolute just sort of naffness of small town America. Yes. That parade is insane. The parade in which Denise, spoiler alert, Denise Richards <laughs> eventually dies. But when they keep cutting between what's happening there and the guy who's trapped with his dungarees in the in the car and the things that are in that display, which is like a really rubbish tank and some old ladies with, <laughs> with, with tinsel on their heads. And it's just little touches like that are really smart i really enjoy them and it's quite affectionate about what would be classed as sort of republican america obviously the lehmans and they are they are all heinous to a family member so the dad is just horrific and racist and the dad who well you mentioned him that's sam mcmurray who people might know from freaks and geeks yeah and obviously like kirsty ali's character Gladys is just horrific and they are the wealthiest people in town and the fact that Loretta actually says you know if they take a shit it's front page news that's how popular they are but they're not popular at all and it's actually you know Kirsten Dunst and Ellen Barkin live in a trailer and she's allowed to shine and I think that's quite an interesting take on how we usually see that bit of America. Yeah, it's definitely a class satire under, underneath all of this. Mm. I was confused by the ending. I don't know, this is probably a, um, well, this is very much a spoiler alert. So Kirstie Alley, obviously, has been up to no good. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's clearly. been making trouble in the neighbourhood. <laughs> sure. And yet it is her daughter who meets a sad, sad demise. Yeah. Yeah. What, if she, why, why didn't she stop that from happening? I think it's an, that one's genuinely an accident. Oh, is it? Okay. Because she was like, it was meant for you uh, to thingy. And I was yeah, like, I think yeah, she, but you... I think she cheats when she reads out the answers, maybe. I read that as when she said it was meant to be you, that she had attempted to kill her on a number of other occasions mm. and, it hadn't, and hadn't succeeded. So you're the one who's meant oh. to be dead, I thought. Yeah. And, be, and the swan is very much an accident because there was supposed to be gasoline on it to make it sparkle. But then obviously it goes wrong. Okay, I thought she meant I'd set a trap for you, thinking you would be up there. But I was a bit like, well, if you did, but you know you do it, why don't you just just stop it from happening, mate? But also Um, it's because, as they've mentioned, they take advantage of cheap (laughs) labour. Sorry, I'm giggling because I'm thinking about something else. I'm thinking about the girl who's obsessed with deaf people and signs really badly. And every time she does it, it makes me laugh. Just off on it, I'm just having a lovely little time thinking about bits of Drop Dead Gorgeous. We've mentioned it quite a few times, so it's worth saying it does have an incredibly funny set piece in the middle in which Denise Richards dances with Jesus on the cross. Which a life-size Jesus doll. No, that did that did make me laugh. To be fair, that is one of one of the bits that I found amusing. I was a bit like she was doing her little intro bit, and I was like, "Where's this going? Like this this is really cringy and gross. Is it going to be a dad? Is it going to be like one of the judges? Who's it going to be?" And then it is a life size Jesus <laughs> on the cross. While she Marilyn Monroe silkily <laughs> sings, "Can't take my eyes off." <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, no one expects the life-size Jesus effigy. It's also worth mentioning, it has some other comedy women in it that probably won't get a mention. Mo Gaffney and Nora Dunn, 
Nora Dunn used to be on SNL and Mo Gaffney used to have her own comedy show, play the two judges in the statewide heat that she goes yes, to where the outbreak excellent. happens and they're very funny. And also, and now I should have written her name down and I can't remember. Mindy Sterling. Mindy Sterling. For who, As Iris, yeah, yeah. Famously from Austin Powers. Yeah. So, I mean... We come to our weekly question, rated or dated. I think we all know what I think. Mm -hmm. And I say rated with a few caveats for some really quite outrageous language. I'm sorry, I think it's dated. Fair enough. Well, based on the conversation that I had with Yosra about whether or not it was acceptable to still recommend films that have things that probably with hindsight you wouldn't have in there. And she said, yes, I'm going to say rated. So, this is our last rated or dated before Christmas. We have got other podcasts coming and more on that coming up. But there won't be a rated or dated. So, Jen is going to join The Cycle in January when we come back. And we'll put on what film she chooses on Twitter. So, if you want to join in with us and watch it, you'll be able to do that. Yes, Jen? Yes. Great. Standard issue for all women.